Academics have unrestricted liberty to question and test received wisdom and to put forward controversial or unpopular opinions, whether or not they are deemed offensive. So we'd seen that the offence culture was going to develop at that time. But this was a line in the sand and um, what we wanted to do was put free speech at the forefront of academic freedom. Today I sat down with Dennis Hayes, Emeritus Professor of Education at the University of Derby. He is the director of the campaign group Academics for Academic Freedom, which he founded in 2006. And he has defended many academics who have been threatened with disciplinary action or censored for their ideas. Professor Hayes is co-author of the best-selling and controversial book, The Dangerous Rise of Therapeutic Education, and a defender of knowledge-based education. I'm Lee Hall and this is British Thought Leaders. Professor Dennis Hayes, thanks for joining us on British Thought Leaders. Thank you for inviting me. Traditionally, the university was seen as a, a, a bastion of free speech, a place where ideas could be challenged. But recently, David Davis MP said that the, the levels of intolerance in universities, he compared them to a totalitarian repression. Uh, so academic um, freedom was brought into law in the 80s. How have we got to this point where we need a, an organisation to defend it? Well, there are two important pieces of law in the, UK, in, in the 1980s. One was the um, Education Number no. 2 Act of, of 1986, and Section 43 is well known, that requires universities to ensure that staff, students and visitors um, have the fr a freedom of speech. But more importantly, there's the, um, what's called the Hillhead Amendment to the 1988 Education Reform Bill, subsequently an act, which gives academic free, academics freedom within the law to question and test receive wisdom and to, and to put forward new or controversial or unpopular ideas without losing any of their privileges or their employment. So that's very important it's in everyone's contract, really. Um, but then something fundamental happened on the 14th of February 1989 when the Ayatollah Khomeini issued the fatwa against Salman Rushdie. And that fatwa was for offending and insulting all Muslims. And I think over the two decades since then, everything has changed. So the one guiding rule now in the universities and is make sure that no one takes offence. Give no offence. That covers everything that people do. And um, so people still say it's about the old no-platforming issues, but people no-platform politicians of the right or the dominant um, left-wing views in the academy, the ideology of, of what's now called wokeism. But Roy Harris and I, um, in uh, 2006, we were writing articles about what was happening in universities, the attack on free speech. He wrote one, with, which I think is excellent and I recommend anyone to read it, called Speaking Out for the Right to Speak Evil. And I was writing about... Um, would you let people tell you what to think? Or here comes the touchy-feely brigade, one popular article that I wrote. And we got in touch and wondered what we should do about this. So over a long dinner in Oxford, and it was a long dinner, um, Roy, who was the Emeritus Professor of um, General Linguistics at Oxford, he's died a few years ago, um, we, we just debated every issue we could think of. And... Um, in relation to free speech, with a focus on what can we do. And so we, we then wrote um, the AFAF Statement of Academic Freedom, 
which is quite different than the Hillhead um, Amendment. And our statement begins, academics have unrestricted liberty to question and test receive wisdom and to put forward controversial or unpopular opinions, whether or not they are deemed offensive. So we'd seen that the offence culture was going to develop at that time. But this was a line in the sand. And um, what we wanted to do was put free speech at the forefront of academic freedom. And so we did that and we encouraged people to sign up to it. It hit the headlines for a few years. And, um, but then we got involved in, AFAF got involved in a lot of casework. So, uh, so academic freedom was seen as um, a, a statement, but then we were defending academics. And we defend academics irrespective of what their views are, whether they're left wing, right wing. We defend their freedom of speech. And that took up a lot of our time and, um, and still does. But we've also um, created something that's very useful. We just decided we would log um, high-profile incidents of people being no-platformed or disciplined for what they say. So we've produced something called the Band List, which is now well-referenced around the world to show what's going on in universities. So, and, it, and that is uh, you know, available to everybody on the website. And since then, it, and almost spontaneously over the last few months, uh, people have started setting up AFAF branches around the country. And that's quite an interesting development. It's not something that we did centrally. It just people said, oh, well, let's set up an AFAF branch. Uh, very um, dynamic ones in Edinburgh, for instance, and Dundee, and others being set up. But the important thing that, to, to say about what's happened is um, you know, that culture of offending could not take place except in, the, in what I would call a therapeutic culture. So only if you see people as essentially vulnerable can the culture of offence take, take place. And I think that, that's the fundamental change that has to be challenged. A lot of people deny that it's happened. So people say, I don't buy into this therapeutic therapy culture. So I think that's why um, people are continually being attacked. So anybody who finds anything offensive, and it's fairly free-floating now, offence. It used to be, you know, you're a member of the National Front or the you know, English Defence League, and we're not letting you speak. But now it could be almost anything you say could be de deemed offensive, and they could be in a disciplinary um, charge for it. And I think that's the situation we're in. But it's the point of convincing people that therapy culture exists and then tackling it. You've been at the, the forefront of this uh, battle for academic freedom for uh, at least a decade and a half, even in, in the halcyon days before we had cancel culture. Yeah. What kind of changes have you seen over that time? I think the fundamental change is an attack on free speech itself. I used to feel that you know, AFAF members and lawyers were quite safe because we were defending free speech. We weren't particularly defending um, extreme views. We were defending people's right to hold those free views. But now free speech has become... Um, something that's under attack itself. This is quite new. You know, people talk about white free speech or Western free speech or um, see free speech as hate speech or, you know, and um, some left-wing half-wits call it free, free speech. You know, so it, there is the idea that you, know, you should not be allowed to speak. So this is beyond debate. There is no debate of the sort of phrases that come up. And so that's a, a problematic situation because um, if if you have free speech is the, the basis of the enlightenment, you know, reason, truth and progress, the enlightenment. You can only have those if you have free speech. But if you don't have free speech, then what do you do? So, you know, Kant's motto for the enlightenment was dare to know. So what I would suggest is we need a new motto today, which is dare to debate. Otherwise, we will lose any, any legacy of the enlightenment. So that's the fundamental change, the attack on free speech itself. So the idea of dare to debate 
How much courage does it take as an academic to, to speak out these days? Well, people keep telling me academics are too afraid to speak out. And um, almost every few weeks an academic will contact us and say, I'm thinking of setting up an academic for academic freedom branch at my university, but we're too frightened. We're worried about putting our head above the parapet. And it is absolutely true that when people have set up branches and just said, you know, they haven't done anything, they just say we're in favour of free speech, they get viciously attacked. You know, you, they get complaints, they get vilified on, in social media. So there is an attack on them. But most of them have, have stuck by it. And are, so my view is it's really simple. You know, academics have really safe positions. They should just speak up. Because there's safety in numbers. The more people speak up, the better it will be for free speech and for those academics. So what, what kind of form do these attacks take? Well, often it's um, just a complaint. I mean, the classic... Um, issue is a student or a member of staff reads something that you've written or said and they complain to your manager who will then either take call you in front for an informal hearing or a disciplinary procedure and you know they can be fairly minor things you know a comment a metaphor you've used in a chat on um, on the zoom conference call somebody doesn't like it and they then complain so there's one example that we have that's now public of um of, uh, an academic going around the university, I won't name well, the university, but, um, and somebody said to him, what do you think about the new multi-phase centre? And he said, I'm a, a lecturer in mathematics, I'd rather see a centre for um, the study of mathematics rather than this religious nonsense, that's what he said. It's filmed, 15 second conversation, gross misconduct, suspended, suspended threatened with the psych. So I think that's, that's the climate lecturers live in, you know, fear of saying anything or somebody takes offence to it and then you, they won't challenge you and say, I don't agree with what you say, they just report you to somebody in authority. And, that, and that's the sort of climate in universities that's hidden. There's a very famous book in America, um, the, the Founders of Fire, the Foundation for Individual Rights in Education, um, it's just changed its name, but they um, took up a case which was confidential and made it public, and it's the only way that they um, got out of the shadow university and um, were able to defend a student as it was, it was attacked. So you know, that idea of the shadow university is, is really important. You know, it does exist, you know, and, you have, and you, anybody who gets um, threatened with a complaint or a disciplinary procedure will know what it's like. And these things don't um, go uh, away quickly. Somebody once said it's the process that's the punishment. So you can be suspended for six months while the process drags on and on. With all so that... not working? Sometimes working, but often with restricted um, contact with students, and not, but often not working. And I think, you know, they say there's no harm, there's no prejudice in that, but of course, it's incredibly damaging. So even if you only get a minor disciplinary um, warning, you know, you've still gone through all that process. So it's not exaggeration to say that that's happening in every university. So what kind of um, concrete actions would AFAF take? Well, in the case, well, we've got a team of pro, bo pro bono lawyers. So people come to us and we um, can actually um, you know, give them lots of legal advice. So that's the way we function. And, and some cases have taken us six, nine months. So it's, it would be an expensive business, but we, we don't charge anyone, but we just do it. If people come to us, I mean, we'll do the best we can. I mean, we've had three people this last week, so we're taking up cases. So 
whose fault is it that we've, we've got to this point with academic freedom under such threat? Is it the, the students, the academics, the unions? Well, I, I, I'm not going to let the academics off the hook. Because it, and the, the academics have a fairly cosy life, whatever they think about their conditions of service. You know, they like teaching, they like research. The aspect that they don't like is free speech. So that's two of the unions as well, the freedom to teach, research, become um, a member of university committees and so on. All those freedoms, everybody's in favour of those. Free speech, people are not so keen on, unless it's their free speech. And I think, um, but that's one aspect of it. The other thing is they refuse to recognise the internal changes, what I call the therapy culture that's in universities. And I think um, that's, that's the most difficult thing. And I just say to people, look and see, go around your universities. You know, I think um, everybody knows about therapy dogs and petting zoos and counselling services and... We have um, you know, all sorts of safe spaces you can go to and you know, trigger warnings. All but also, you know, some um, universities have bibliotherapy sections in their library. If you just look around a university, you'll see all these questions about safety. I went to one university where it had um, a leaflet for counselling and they collect these things. And the counselling leaflet said, um, if you come to this university and you study um, uh, sociology, you might find that a lot of people are poor. And if you come and study nursing, you might find that a lot of people are ill. So you can see where this is going. You know. So whatever subject you're studying, you might need counselling because you, you, you'll be so disturbed by what you're studying. So, you know, and um, so I think you just look around and you'll see that, these, that things are changing. That, that Within the university, students are presented by this plethora of uh, therapeutic, quasi-therapeutic activities that they're supposed to engage in. So you wrote a book in um, 2008 called the, the Dangerous Rise okay. of Therapeutic Education. So that, that, that referred to this kind of stuff. Um, so were you, were you predicting kind of the rise of snowflakes in that book? The book came out in 2008. The term snowflakes was one of the words of the year in um, 2016. So 10 years on. And when we've got a chapter in the book called The Therapeutic University. And people criticised us for that because they said, um, look, it's hard work at universities, you know, we're trying to um, develop human knowledge, it's a tough fight, it's never going to become therapeutic. And of course, it, uh, universities are the place that have become more therapeutic than ever, any school. And it's partly because um, students have been trained throughout their career in all these therapeutic activities, add safeguarding a bit so they must never be offended or hurt. So they come to universities and they want it to be a safe space. I want it to be like big school, and it's not. But then universities buy into it. You know, so you get um, freshers' weeks becoming welcome weeks. And going to university is really, really intimidating. And I think, you know, when you look at it over the last 10 years, 20 years even, you know, the, the obsession with different things that have gone into universities, self-esteem was one. Then there was emotional intelligence, you remember them, emotional literacy, happiness. Um, mindfulness. Um, one vice chancellor wanted to make his university the mindful university, and you have um, uh, well-being, and now mental health. You know, if you go to university, you know, your mental health might be threatened. So, all these um, initiatives and concerns, which had nothing to do with education, nothing to do with people's psychological um, lives, are very dangerous. And students pick up on these and learn the language. So. I heard, overheard a student coming out of a tutorial about, for long, about six months ago now, and she said, um, 
oh, that was difficult. That tutorial really affected my mental health. I mean, instead of saying, right, I need to read more and do better next time, it's, it, it's my problem. You know, I've got a problem now with my mental health. But they're learning the language. They're learning the language of, um, of vulnerability. And that's the dangerous thing, because it gets internalised. And if you add that to the concern with you know, ensuring that no one ever takes offence, you've got a dangerous situation, because you never know what's going to offend a student or minister. So should we be looking at encouraging students to think less about their emotions and think more about being more resilient and, and pushing forward to, to learn more and, and be more ambitious? Of course, resilience was one of the, th the, th the themes that universities were... When it was self-esteem, they thought, well, that's a bit negative, you've got low self-esteem, so let's build your resilience. And that's another therapeutic initiative. But universities should go back to their core job, which is teaching subjects. Most students go to university because they're passionate about subject, whatever it is, and that's true. They do. They still say, "I come because I love history. I come because, you know, I really want to do philosophy," and then they get something else. So I think it's time to go back to the core business of teaching knowledge in schools and not letting um, university become big school. Because the important thing is that students are not children; they're adults, and they should be treated that way. They, that's, they can get on with organising their own social activities and they don't have to be um, led by university um, managers in, in, in all their activities. So you know, treat them like adults and then teach them subjects and they'll respond. Well, last year the government introduced a bill to, to try and defend the academic freedom. Um, could you tell us like, how the bill intends to do that? Well, the good thing about the bill is that it recognises that there's a free speech crisis in universities. And, you know, that's denied by university leaders who say, oh, look, we have thousands of lectures every year. But all those lectures are uncontroversial. And it's denied by the unions who say, you know, it's an excuse to, for fascism, they actually say that, it's, fascism, it's an excuse to let hate speech free in, freely uttered in universities. So the, the government have recognised that. And the, but the changes they want to bring in are, are interesting. One is to um, introduce a statutory tort so that anybody who feels that the university has breached its free speech duties will have to um, will have the ability to sue the university. And to, to facilitate that, they've, they're in process of appointing a director of free speech and academic freedom based in the Office for Students who will oversee the complaints procedure before it goes to court and advise universities on their free speech duties. So each university will have one of those? No, there'll be one in, based in the Office for Students. So some universities have now decided that let's get ahead of the game and try and introduce somebody who will defend free speech. Um, and, but the third point, and one that I would agree with, is that they've um, made it a requirement of both universities and student unions to actively promote free speech. So you can't just say, yes, we accept that free speech is important. They have to show, they will have to show that they're promoting free speech. And that's important as far as students' unions are concerned, because they're the ones who are no-platforming more than anyone else. But do you feel the bill will be successful? I think it, it's, it's got dangers, and one of them is um, going to law. And actually, We've already got a turn to what's called lawfare, if you've ever heard of the term lawfare, where people will, um, if they're feel that their free speech in a university or anywhere has been um, uh, denied, they go to court. So the, the most important case recently was Maya Forstarter. She won a case um, saying that she, her gender-critical beliefs were um, 
protected under the Equality Act. So, you know, and that's very successful, and, but it, it could create a climate where everybody, instead of arguing for free speech and winning the arguments, just goes to court. So um, we've, we've seen a change in the people who've come to us over the last few weeks even. They're already coming to us and saying, I'm now in trouble because they've put in a complaint. So they didn't come to us about it because we said, don't put in a complaint. Don't get meshed in these procedures. Have a debate about the issue. Try and get it more public. And so they're way down, weeks and weeks into having discussions with management and being threatened with disciplinary action as well because they're following a complaints procedure. And the, the cards are stacked on those sort of procedures. And they're not free speech procedures because once you go into a complaints procedure, it's all restricted and it's quite private. So I think the jury's out on what will happen. I tend to um, believe that unless you win the battle for free speech, the arguments, then what will happen is academics will just say, oh, well, we've got a free speech champion, we've got free speech law, so that's all okay. And they'll just withdraw and continue to self-censor and not invite controversial speakers. So as the, as the director of AFAF, do you feel there's any glaring emissions from the bill or something that should be out there, isn't Well, I think they have to deal with what we've talked about before, the um, disciplinary procedures with those gagging clauses. Because lots of cases um, you know, are happening and um, even are resolved, but then there'll be a some sort of financial or other, other settlement, and they're, they're kept confidential. So you never know what's happening. So I think um, even in disciplinary cases, they should um, make them public. One of the issues with the um, um, Higher Education and Free Speech Bill was that it um, was hastily written. So they put in a clause saying that academics have freedom of speech within their area of expertise or their field of expertise because if you remember I gave you the statement from the Hillhead uh, amendment which is academics have freedom within the law to question and test um, received opinion and put forward new or controversial ideas without jeopardy. so restricting it to your field of expertise was very narrow so what would you say about another discipline there are all sorts of things um, and I think university managers would have liked that because you can't criticise management which he knows you're right, and you can't criticise anyone else. You've just got to do your research. And I think um, that was very damaging. It has been removed, we think, so, um, because people campaigned against it. So the old free speech clause has been put back in. <laughs> but it just shows you how hasty it was. So the consequences of it weren't thought through. And I think that's true about you know, the, what was the free speech champion, but now the director of free speech and academic freedom. Once you've got this big figure, I think people will think it's safe now. We're all okay, and um, and people like AFAF and the Free Speech Union as well will be involved forever in um, defending people who are taking cases out against universities. But it will be legal and quiet. I mean, you can try and make them public, but I bet there will be gagging clauses. So you won't be able to do anything until you've gone through an, an endless internal complaints procedure that the director is charged with, direct, with drafting. It's great that they're, they're bringing in a law to try and change things, but do you feel kind of keep passing laws is, is going to solve the issue, or do we need to take a step back and look at things in a more kind of holistic way? I think that's true. I think the move to lawfare means that you have to um, not give up on the arguments. Because if you've got an argument, like, does this fit the Equality Act? Is it protected by the Equality Act? It's a very technical discussion. You know? So if we get every single thought and belief protected by the Equality Act, another legal case, another legal case, 
it may not yet change anything for anyone. So I think you know, I'd, I'd rather that there was more debate. So when uh, we have put in a, um, a submission to the consultation on the free speech bill, basically we said what you really need is a public debate. Let's debate free speech in every university. Every university should have a free speech debate every year. Yeah. And, and at Derby, just to say, because you know, I worked there, we had a debate about free speech at the academic board, and we talked about free speech. And um, you know, the, the vice chancellor was quite happy to have a debate on what are universities for. So I think other universities do that sort of thing, and that will change the, that will change the atmosphere rather than just um, waiting for the champion to come in and tell you what you should do. Because basically, the state can't um, tell you to be free. And that, that's servitude, and that's serfdom. If, because you have to you know, win your own freedom. And people forget that you know, we have free speech not because of the laws in the 1980s, um, but because people actually believed in it and fought for free speech. And that's the situation we should try and bring about again. You mentioned the, the debates for free speech, which sounds great. Do you have any other examples of students or academics taking action that can kind of bring us some hope for things to change? Well, I was always um, pessimistic. If you read things I've written over about 15 years, it'll say this is going to be the worst year for academic freedom, worst year for free speech. And I was at the University of Warwick, I think about 2019, and uh, after a debate on free speech, students came up and said, we want to set up a free speech society. We don't get involved in the NUS, we want to set up a free speech society. And then people started emailing us, contacting us, saying we'd like to set up a free speech society. Individual students. And I thought, this is the change. So it wasn't academics telling students they need to believe in free speech. The students, I think they got fed up of being infantilised. They were told what they can listen to and what they can't. So recently, free speech societies have sprung up everywhere. There's Bristol, Buckingham, Queen Mary's, um, Kent, um, Sussex, and many more. And students just set them up. And that is a really good development. On the downside, of course, students are students, and eventually they cease to be students. So you know, some of the best um, free speech societies have not continued. But what my hope is that um, some of those students will become academics, or they'll go into other um, forms of employment, where they'll defend free speech. So there is hope in that without being patronising about students. I do think something substantial has changed. So when academics say, what should we do about it? I think students are saying... We'll do it. You know, and they'll be provocative. But they, sh they show that they have equal concerns. Someone that the debate at the Battle of Ideas on, on Saturday said, we're frightened, you know, at Oxford, if we, have, we fight, if we say what we think, it might affect our job. Prospects, you know, people, tra tra if any employer tracks us down on social media and says, oh, you believe in this. And somebody's reply to that was, well, do you really want to work for an employer who's going to do that sort of thing and not allow free speech? Now think about it, that you wouldn't want to work for an employer like that. So be a bit braver. Professor Dennis Hayes, thanks for joining us on British Thought Leaders. Thank you for inviting me again.